I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. David Renton, a barrister and political activist. Before becoming a barrister, he was an academic historian and sociologist, teaching at universities in England and South Africa. He's here to talk about his newest books, No Free Speech for Fascists, Exploring No Platform in History, Law and Politics, from Rutledge, as well as Labor's Anti-Semitism Crisis, What the Left Got Wrong and How to Learn from It, and Jobs and Homes, Stories of the Law in Lockdown. For more, you can visit his website, dkrenton.co.uk. That's dkrenton.co.uk. And follow him at Twitter, at dkrenton. As with all Rendering Unconscious podcast episodes, there is a video accompanying this episode at YouTube. Just visit Trapart Films' YouTube channel, that's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film, at YouTube, or search for Rendering Unconscious podcast. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics and Poetry from Tripart Books 2019. For more information, you can visit our publisher's website, tripart.net. That's T R A P A R T.net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3-C-A-R-L. Your support is very appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors. I guess um, we got in touch on Twitter, I think. Mm-hmm. And you'd seen that, that I had a book out about um, the politics of free speech, deplatforming, things like that. So happy to start there, if, if, if you'd like. Yeah, and then I saw today, I think you posted that you have another book out. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, this is kind of embarrassing. Um, I, I should explain to people listening, I'm, uh, what I do for a living is I'm a barrister. Um, and it's one of those jobs which if you go into I mean I I never wanted to be a barrister I wanted to be a historian I wanted to be an academic I wanted to teach in universities until I was like 30 or 35 that's essentially what I did 
and then I've had a career as a barrister and one of the strange things as a barrister is it is incredibly intense you know if I've got to write a paper for court it, it would not be a strange day in any way if I just wrote six and eight or ten thousand words um paper setting up my client's position or if I had to read a hundred thousand words worth of documents those are just like normal things you do in a day so when COVID happened suddenly there's all that kind of energy and desire to change the world desire to explain things and and all the courts got shut so there wasn't anyone to talk to so I was like okay well I'll, I'll kind of go back and all these things I've been meaning to write about I then started writing about so um, I actually brought out three books in the last year which is like actually so many that, that it's kind of embarrassing like I sort of go say to my friends like would you you know you know you write you know maybe you'd you'd like review my book and they go well which book and then <laughs> So during COVID, I sort of brought out um, two or three books. One was, was just like a year in the life of being a lawyer. One is about the free speech thing. And the other one's actually about the Labour Party, the crisis we've had here with anti-Semitism and all the damage that did to like a really interesting egalitarian project behind Jeremy Corbyn. So if you want to come on that, happy to talk about that too. Yeah, let's talk about them. Cool. Let's start with the anti-fascist book. Okay, well, the, the, where, the idea that it's talking about is just, um, it seems to me almost like the most basic and essential thing which anti-fascists do is um, we turn around and say, we don't want fascists to have a platform. We don't want them to be able to speak. We think if we take away all their platforms, all their opportunities to speak, they'll get shrunk down to the point where they can't organise anymore. And that's almost like the core thing anti-fascists do. And I was just really intrigued by the politics of that. And the book's all about politics, um, a little bit of history, a little bit of law, but essentially about the politics of that. Because it's not just, you know, um, that, that tactical approach of taking away speech rights from people you think are terrible, or hateful, have terrible vision for how they want to run society. It, it's running up against huge cultural politics. You know, if you think about um, Donald Trump, you think about how during um, that, that last election he fought, he kept on saying, my enemy is Antifa. I mean, you know, American anti American anti-fascists, how many people are you talking about? You're talking about a few thousand in a country of 200, 300 million people. They're, they're not, they can only be your big enemy if you've got a really strange and um, ideologically puffed out notion of what's going out in the world. But all you could think about after um, January and you had his thing, I know his coup, his insurrection, whatever it was, um, then again, Trump turns around and what's his defence when he's um, challenged that his defence is free speech? Um, we have the First Amendment. This is like the most privileged idea in American law. It's the First Amendment. So, so you've got this kind of quite strange thing. On our side, we've got quite a worked out idea about how to respond to it. And on the other side, there's this complete notion that there's nothing you could do that could be worse than taking away someone's speech rights. So I was just interested in kind of like the clashing together of these two coherent but obviously completely opposite ideas of, of the world yeah what do you think about that idea that that there's free speech up to a limit but if your free speech kind of hurts other people or is putting other people in danger then that needs to be limited well kind of one of the things about the book is that i'm talking about this as a writer on the left and very much i i feel my audience is, is overwhelmingly on the left i mean i do write for a range of publications I sometimes even write for centre-right um, publications, but my audience is overwhelmingly on the left, so it's aimed at them. And one of the things I'm trying to do with the book, um, oddly enough, and I appreciate this isn't an argument people often hear, so this will sound strange, yeah? 
Um, one of the things I'm trying to do with my book is actually say, be cautious about some of the left-wing arguments over speech and be cautious about this idea that um, essentially the justification for taking away people's speech rights is that the, the person who you dislike is doing something hateful that will take away your dignity, that will make you diminished as a person and will just destroy you um, and how you feel about life. And just so you can't, they can't speak because it will hurt you. And what I try to do with my book is, is and I go through this through, through different arguments, politics, history, law, whatever, is I'm trying to say that argument doesn't deliver the emancipation that people want it to deliver for a couple of reasons, a um, couple of core reasons. One is that um, it's just a notion of who gets to decide who, who, who gets to speak. In hate speech, um, we're always saying, here am I someone who, who gets um, hatred, gets racism, gets um, sexism, gets transphobia, gets a kind of violence, a kind of verbal violence directed against me. Then I have to find someone else, um, an interlocutor, who's got the power to stop this speech happening anymore. So I go along and I petition this authority and ask them, to be the one who takes the speech away and I'm saying that that move is um, a bad move to make that actually what social movements should be doing is they should be thinking about their own power their own power in society and their own opportunity to speak etc and it sh they should be focused on themselves rather than looking to someone else to be the agent um, in that situation and the agency in, in the silence in which is the intended state but there are a couple there are a couple other points as well one is I think that the hate speech argument thinks it's really quite easy to identify who the aggressor is in any situation. And I try and say, you know, having spent at least a decade of my life trying to persuade judges um, to make good decisions in, in complex and contested situations, that actually it's not always that easy to work out who the, um, who's, who's the source of conflict. And the third, I think third, it's kind of it's a restatement of that same basic idea, or maybe it's another idea, I don't know. But I say there's also a problem with thinking that, that in any situation, it's the person who goes in and is disturbing it and is, is kind of the force of chaos and they come in first and they're the problem and they should be closed down. And I sort of, one of the things I'm trying to put in my book is this sort of quite coded long-term argument for saying, actually in some situations, the aggressor has the moral high ground. And she's thinking, if I tell a judge, they're the aggressor, so they'll be silent, so I'll be all right. Actually, that's just a really bad way of approaching the situation. And it doesn't result in people getting either, you know, the genuine aggressor silence, or it doesn't um, um, result in um, the kind of liberty and the personal safety that, that's obviously so essential to people. What do you think we could do, like you said, in the, your first point of like kind of focusing more on yourself and your own position, your own speech? What do you think we could do to kind of shift towards that a bit? I think it, one, one of the things I'm trying to encourage people to, to see is that it kind of depends what kind of adversary you're, you're facing. Let's say you're in a situation where gen, genuinely the adversary is, is fascism and it's a fascism which people can understand. If that's the adversary you're facing, and I think it's quite easy to, to justify tactics which might include silencing, shaming, confrontation, etc. Loads of people get it and understand it. And if you want something, I don't know if this is an example which um, your listeners will be able to relate to, but um, you think about the example of Richard Spencer at the inauguration in Washington. You know, this is a guy who's made his career trying to import into America a particularly ideological and theoretical version of fascism. 
and there's a clip where he gets punched and something like, I don't know, but all the different films, that so many different films got made of this one image that maybe like 50 million people around the world watched that image. And my understanding is very few people disliked that image. In fact, almost overwhelmingly, there's this kind of people watch it and there's this immense sense of relief and happiness that that took place. But wh why did that happen? And, and to my mind, it's, it's because it's not because of the image, justice of this Nazi getting punched. It's actually because that image is prefaced by about 30 seconds of dialogue. And in that 30 seconds of dialogue, there's an exchange. You hear Richard Spencer, he's given his opportunity to kind of say what he stands for. And he's asking, you know, are you white supremacists? And he kind of giggles at the question and gives this very, uh, this elusive and unbelievable argument. So suddenly at the end of it, everyone goes, okay, you know, that person's obviously a creep. I, you know, whether he's a fascist or not, you can write a PhD about that, but he's obviously a creep and you can understand why he gets a punch. But that kind of tactic is legitimate to a certain kind of enemy. Let's say that the thing you're trying to resist is something which feels like much more mainstream, much more at the center of politics. And I suppose what I'm saying in my book, if, if, that's, if, you, if you're in a movement, if you're an individual and you're facing one of those sorts of enemies, it feels like they've got like quite a lot of the imprimatur of society upon them, then probably the tactics which are gonna be legitimate are quite different. And they might not even be about trying necessarily trying to, as it were, turn the volume down on that person's speech till it gets to the point where it's zero. It might be that against that sort of adversary, your more effective tactic is actually turn up the volume of your speech until you're on 10 and you're, and you're, and you're the one who can be heard and they can't. But it, it's about having the kind of political intelligence. I don't mean politics in terms of left, right. I mean, the kind of cultural political intelligence to grasp what kind of enemy you're, you're facing and what, and what, therefore, what tactics might be appropriate for dealing with them. What kind of different enemies could there be? Well, we, we, we live in a moment where, where a lot of people identify their enemies as being about, if you think about the hate speech approach, which is just about saying, I don't want someone to speak because what they say is hateful then that approach might be someone who, who's talking in a, in a way which is identifiably racist or sexist or homophobic, etc. But the point I want to make, I suppose, is that there are an awful lot of people out there who talk in ways which are racist, sexist, homophobic, etc. Um, you know, one of the examples I talk about a lot in my book is because it's kind of one of the, the great moments of anti-fascist history in, in, and something which a lot of writers in Britain and the States draw on is Britain in the 70s. Um, for example, there was a student movement um, in the United States, in fact, the student movement, the National Union of Students. One of the things they do is they actually pass a motion which says we'll, we'll um, no platform any form of racist or fascist speech. And one of the things I try and talk about in my book is, is what would it actually be in Britain in the 1970s to, to get rid of all racist speech? Because, you know, loads of people around the world go, well, this is brilliant. This is absolutely what we should be trying to do. To do that, if you were serious about doing that, and, and again, I, that's one thing I'm trying to get people to do, is to take the demands from making actually think through, to actually go for them, not just raise them rhetorically, but actually go for them. You know, if you're looking at Britain in the 70s, you know, three out of five of the, the best-selling, most-watched TV programmes have as their essential standing joke, oh, look, there are foreigners, and they're stupid, and they're strange, whereas English people are all great, but those foreigners are funny, and they're funny just because they're foreign. You're talking about the culture where all our mass of our mass circulation newspapers, the large majority, constantly run out um, racist stories. They run out racist stories about crime, blaming on black people. They run out racist stories when um, 
there's a horrible race attack in Britain in 1981, um, New Cross, which is very important here. Almost every single newspaper in Britain runs stories blaming what's essentially a group of teenage black party goers for, the fo for, for a fire, which is started probably by some white racist coming to house and setting fire to it. But, they, but the press blamed black people. You can think about, um, because obviously, you know, I'm sorry, I'm very Brit in my perspective. So when I think about racism, you know, I, that's not shaped by history, not particularly, for example, of slavery, but it's shaped by history of migration and attitudes towards migration. So, you know, right the way through the 70s, um, we get stories in Britain. Um, literally, there's, there's a story in 1976, autumn 1976, where two families are found in a bed and breakfast who the journalist reckons are probably from Malawi. Now, within minutes of this happening, this is national news in every single newspaper in Britain, oh my God, wave of Malawian immigrants are coming here. And they say every Malawian passport holder, because it's a former British colony, so, well, there are lots of people got British passports. And you see these stories, you know, 140,000, 200,000, a million Malawians are going to come to Britain next week. And actually, then someone checks, and there's like 500 people in Malawi have a British passport, so could actually get it. But you get this constant drum of racism. So if you actually turn around and say, take seriously the idea of taking out all racist speech, you have to do a lot of damage to a lot of institutions in society. Maybe those are institutions which deserve it, the police, the border patrols, etc. But it's a hell of a big task. And it's a different kind of task from the ones which the students are actually setting themselves. Yeah, that's the thing between like, some ideas are really wonderful ideas, but like, how do you actually implement them? Like I had a, a guest on a few episodes ago was talking about like the refugee crisis. And of course there's gonna be more and more migration with wars and global warming and everything. And like what happened from 2015 on and, you know, how do you, you know, of course, everyone agreed after World War II that you don't turn people away, but then in practice, like some places did let people in, but then some places did lock their borders and turn them away. And how do you get everyone to actually do what they say they're going to do? And me being new to the EU, I thought, well, shouldn't it be like prerequisite? Like if you're going to be in the EU, you have to do that. And then if you don't, you're not allowed to be, but then that might end up breaking up the EU more. And is that a good thing? Yeah, look, I mean, I know I think I think it's incredible what's happened in terms of anti-migrant rhetoric in Europe um, now you know I'm a historian I've been writing about racism and fascism since like 30 years I, I reckon getting on for 30 years and and anti-refugee and anti-migrant rhetoric anti-migrant policy is so much worse than it was um 30 years ago you know um in the 70s we were all terribly worried because there were these far-right parties and we thought oh this is terrible you know they're talking about repatriation um, the size and scale of, of the um, legal organisations which exist to force refugees out of Britain are on no scale to what they were then. Um, you're talking then about countries which um, Britain had something like around 100 deportations a year. Um, there have been years in the last five years where we've had tens of thousands of deportations. A year. Wow. And there's absolutely no press coverage of it. And, and you know, we've got such a dishonest press coverage about it you know if, if you talk about their countries like turkey for example which is just on the periphery of the european union so not in now might be in in the future trying to get in the rest of europe sort of kind of accepting them in principle but trying to make this not happen for like 50 or 100 years or something but turkey is a country um, at any one time it's got something like two million refugees inside its borders 
um, Britain, you know, we think we're amazing if we take 5,000 in a year. And the idea that, you know, we're such a richer country than Turkey, and we get tremendously proud that we do so much. I mean, we sort of, our whole press coverage, you know, you know, I mean, like an example, we, we, um, we, we didn't ever have Fox News in the UK. We didn't have a British equivalent. In the last month, we've acquired a British equivalent, Brit, uh, a, oh, British, no. a British TV programme. And it had real trouble um, because the first few weeks, hardly anyone was watching. There were, there were days when there were fewer than 10,000 people watching their programmes. There were days when, as far as we can, literally no one watched some of their programmes. So I thought, oh my God, we've got to try and get a way of getting the public to notice and get them interested in this. So they had the idea, um, they got Nigel Farage, one of our far-right politicians, he's been around forever. He hasn't been that successful in the last three or four years, but obviously very associated with Brexit. They, they pulled him in as a guest presenter. He's trying to think, how do I make myself relevant? Oh my God, oh my God. And he went after uh, the RNLI. If you've never heard about it, it's something like the Royal National Lifeboat Institution. It's just going back like 200 years. It's the most conservative, mainstream, patriotic, uncontroversial thing. What it is, is that every single coastal area of Britain, there's always been a culture of people go out and volunteer to protect people who might be swimming out to sea and they might die. So they're the Coast Guards, they're the lifeguards. And they exist and they raise money and they're not political. And Nigel Farage says, um, we should ban them. We should get rid of them because they're letting refugees come to Britain on boats from Calais. And what we should be doing is we should be shooting people in the boats. They don't come. And we want to have the RNLI destroyed because they're saving people's lives. And there was this extraordinary, huge, like Orwellian moment of rant about the RNLI. It just caught something in the public imagination in terms of like, and you'd watch these, these social media things um, and you're suddenly watching these lists of I'm cancelling my subscription to RNI. I never knew that they saved the lives of foreigners uh, as this. And, and it was extraordinary just how bloody cosmetic and manufactured this was. Mm. This is like TV station going down the pan, mm, got to make ourselves relevant, creates a story out of nothing. But it clearly wasn't out of nothing, clearly fixed into something in people's heads, something really quite disturbing, worrying about you know, our society that it needed to have that and um i you know i i have to say i'd never make excuses for people doing that i mean i just think that's i i i think that if you go back to all the arguments which are made after the end of the second world war about looking after refugees and their, their essential reasoning was right you, you cannot have a society which starts turning around and treats a bunch of people as less than human that does damage so many other things yeah, and then also this idea where like news and journalism and media, instead of like having integrity of reporting, just does things to like raise ratings and kind of shock people and like people just kind of falling into that so easily. Yeah, but but you know, the, the, the extraordinary thing is how that ground's been softened up for really quite a long time. Um, you know, um, you know, in my, you know, in lots of books, I've talked about how that starts in the 60s and 70s, how it take, how it grows in pace. That, that there were kind of moments where it looked like you could turn that around, and you could, and you could get a bunch of people in society said, no, no, that's not what we, that's not what we stand for at all. Um, there's a moment at the end of the 70s, I often talk about rock against racism. We hit this huge mass movement in the UK against racism. There have been specific moments in, in British history where, where there's been really intense identification with migrants. There was one 
um, three, four years ago um, when a young, um, I think, young Turkish or Kurdish boy, I think, I think his name was Alan Kurdi, was killed and drowned on the beach. People saw that image and it, and it just, it, it became immensely something which everyone wanted to talk about very briefly. But it did have, there was a moment when, when the debate turned around. And I guess the hardest thing in Britain is, is that we've had, and I don't know if it's true, um, perhaps, you know, where you are too, that, you know, we've had left-wing parties with very deep roots in trade unions in the working class movement, which went through moments when they kind of got that you needed to be pro-refugee, but they've kind of got spooked. They're, they're nervous. They think that if they go too far down that way, they'll, they'll somehow lose their voters. So then ne they never put their, their argument coherently and confidently and just explain to people, look, this is just what you do as, as a, a democratic, social democratic society, beyond you do your share. And say in the UK, you know, we're the fifth largest economy in the world and we're not in the top 50 in terms of taking refugees. We are not doing our share. And that's just your duty. And it's not it's not an onerous duty in the scheme of things. You know, um, you know if you think about, like, you mentioned the history of refugee migration in the 30s, you think about how that then pro produced generations of film directors, doctors, mm -hmm. um, people who come as a young person to your country, are people who come who are excited and enthused and have skills and they can contribute. They're not just a cost. Absolutely. And here in Sweden, the Social Democrats, they are very firm about that. You know, this is part of our policy and this is what we do. You know, this is what a society should do. Unfortunately, the Social Democrats have had the majority for a long time, for like, I think almost 100 years. Yeah, but look, I mean, if that's true in Sweden, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not true in Denmark, for example. No, but, no, no, not Denmark Democrats. or Norway. <laughs> yeah, but social Democrats in, introduce policies like, for example, if, if a um, refugee um, comes to your country and you know, they, they bring any jurors and that jury is confiscated, it's now the States. I mean, uh, this will sound really weird, but, but when I heard that, I, I couldn't help but think because, you know, I've got a family on my mother's side, my family Jewish, on my father's side, um, they aren't. So I've got both, you know, behind me. And I know some of my mother's stories about um, her, her parents as a family escaping from Nazi Germany, coming over to Europe. And you're doing that thing of, you know, turning a re the relatively small amount of money they have, that people had like a shop, basically, turning it into literal jewellery and then hiding it. So you're on a train and you're trying to get out to freedom and hiding the jewellery where no one will see it. And I just, I found it very hard then to think about that story of Denmark, where they go, well, okay, we're going to confiscate all the jewellery. Mm. That just seemed to be one of those things which has got a real resonance. It's people choosing to put themselves almost on the wrong side of history, and I don't get why anyone would do that personally. Mm -mm. Something that's interesting that I learned that Sweden does, now that I'm finally able to start like reading and listening to their news in Swedish instead of just in English, um, is that they never they never say any ethnicities of people when they report the news. It's always like a man or a woman. But they don't describe anything else about them. Yeah, well, um, th those are all debates in in anti-racist circles. You know, I mean, maybe the thought process behind that's actually a positive one, which is we're not. If you start describing people in terms of ethnicity, then you're giving race a credence. Then you're, and I've certainly heard in lots of different places. Um, the argument that's just something you should never ever do um i have to say one of the best arguments i ever heard back to that as a, as a response to that was 
I remember um, I had a teaching job a long time ago, like nearly 20 years ago in South Africa. So not that long after Mandela came out, not that long after the first democratic election. And I got really lucky and got offered to um, teach there just for a year and, and had an amazing time. But I remember being at this academic seminar and there was this sort of white prof um, appointed under the apartheid era. And he's just going, yeah, yeah, I don't understand. Why do you always have to make such a deal out of race? we've got equality now couldn't we just all see each other as human and it's like there's like 20 year old people in the room having to respond to this person they admire and they respect and have probably been on the right side for most of the last 10 years so they weren't having go they're just explaining really slowly and patiently well look you know we live in this university this university has 5,000 people in it 80 percent white the town that this university is in is 90 percent black and of the black people in that township that surrounds the they do not get to this university. There are still so many walls, so many gates, housing, jobs, everything. So you can have equality. So there's a reason why we talk about race, which is actually we're serious about equality. Mm. Are you serious about equality? And, you know, obviously the, the prof guy wasn't great at answering the question, you know. Yeah, that's great. And that kind of seems like it segues into the book that just came out that I saw on Twitter today. Oh, the one about anti-Semitism in the late part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyone listening, you've not seen the kind of slight um, sigh in my face as Vanessa asked the question. That um, I kind of feel it's slightly different. When I'm talking about free speech, I'm talking about, um, and the politics of free speech, I'm talking about the left and what we could be doing. And maybe what we could do that could work a bit better and be more exciting. Uh, when you talk about the Labour Party and Anti-Semitism, for me, the first thing is you just have to acknowledge that we did get quite a lot wrong. Um, that um, we had um, a leader of the Labour Party in Britain, Corbyn, who's really quite an exciting and interesting figure. You know, he comes in in 2015. He's probably the most left-wing leader the Labour Party had ever had. He... Um, there were things about him which were really exciting. He wasn't just a Swedish-style social democrat, although he was that. He talked about housing. He got um, this completely destructive housing market we've got in the way it just carves housing out for younger people, forced them to live for decades mm. um, on very high rents, which goes alongside debts from student debts, etc., and creates this this sort of this this really destructive model where you've got a kind of almost like age banding in the economy in the economy so if you're under if you're over 50 well if you've got a mortgage because it was easier then you know actually the economy's doing great you're doing all right you're pretty well off if you're under 30 then you're spending 50 60 percent of your take on pay on housing and you have all sorts of other debts too and it feels like it's never going to end so you have these these you have these kind of boom for one part of society bust for another part of society and it's just constant like that it never feels like it's going to change the, those sorts of things he was brilliant on. But the thing that, that Corbyn was also really good at is he was willing to talk about empire. He's really willing to talk about Britain and, its, and our place in the world. He's willing to talk about policing. Um, and he just, he didn't see like Britain as this sort of great society that was doing everything perfect. And if there's ever a problem, lift up the Union Jack. Uh, and he, and therefore some of the people he appealed to were, for example, um, black voters, young voters, grime artists, there's this really interesting dynamic in Britain where it kind of felt like everything was going in just the sort of way, which if you're a lefty and at all serious as a lefty, it was like, whoa, you know, the society's growing up. 
you know, we're getting to the place we want to go. And then Corbyn starts kind of falling apart for a whole bunch of different reasons. Antisemitism is only one of them. But you start getting this phenomenon of antisemitism in the Labour Party. And we see different versions of it. We see um, a lot of it on social media. We see a lot of it being really blatant, you know, people on Labour Party sort of sharing Holocaust denial messages. Or, you know, um, you know, one of my favourite cities in Britain is Liverpool. Uh, one of my favourite venues in Liverpool, the founder of it, is this guy who's been anti-racist all his life. And they've got a Jewish MP, a relatively right-wing uh, Jewish Labour MP. And he gets drunk and literally goes up to her and starts abusing her. And starts saying, your Prime Minister is Benjamin Netanyahu. Like, okay, well, that might be, this might be about Palestine rather than Jews. Okay, well, we'll listen. What else does he say? He says, all Jewish people are rich and I hate you because you're a Jew. And to, to, to my mind, this is completely shocking. This isn't the left I grew up in. These aren't at all the values. And, and so what I'm trying to do but is kind of try and just, first of all, just understand what happened. Because we, we had something like, um, of course, for four years, we had something like 10,000 stories in the national press about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And if that was just 10,000 stories in the national press, the national press is quite a small part of the media these days. We had probably total number of stories, all the different stories, even including blogs, podcasts. We probably had like a million stories about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Somewhere there's real truth to it, somewhere it's actually manufactured, just all different versions of it. And I'm just trying to think, where, where did anti-Semitism start to come from in general? Why was the Labour Party vulnerable to it? Um, what are the things which we need to do to kind of guard against it in future? That's so interesting. Um, and then I was thinking too, imagine how much you're not hearing about that's going on. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, one of the arguments which was made repeatedly was why on earth is it that, for example, everyone's talking about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party? Why not, wasn't everyone talking about, for example, Islamophobia in the Conservative Party? Why doesn't ever anyone ever talk about anti-black racism? Um, you know, if, if you think about um, a moment in, in Britain in 2017, Corbyn stands in general election and actually massively increases the Labour vote. And this is after the anti-Semitism story's already started, it's in the press. While this is going on, there's this kind of secret um, officials like WhatsApp channel where they're sharing commentary about how Labour's going to do. I'm talking about Labour Party officials. So it's, and you read their private discussions amongst each other. First of all, they're just saying, God, our party could win. Yeah, so it's like, imagine like in America, it's be like if you've got the, the WhatsApps of the DNC and Bernie Sanders is the, pre is the presidential candidate and it's looking like Bernie Sanders might actually win. And no one is going, thank goodness, our party's going to win the election. Everyone's going, oh, my God, this is a disaster. This is the worst thing that's ever happened in my life. These absolutely horrible people on the left are going to win. But it's not just that they're, um, they're very, very anti kind of the rank and file, the ordinary members of their own party. They're also sharing an enormous number of, like, anti-black racist messages amongst each other. Mm. Like, every single Labour, um, black Labour MP, they, they kind of they come up with different cuss words for them. And really unpleasant stuff, the sort of stuff which you thought people wouldn't even do in private since 40 years ago, maybe. And they're all sharing this stuff. So you kind of have this weird thing, which is, yes, there's genuinely anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. But yes, there's also this big rise of like anti-Black racism, for example, which you know the press can't talk about because the press have built up this huge story about Corbyn. And you can only have one story at a time. You can't say... Okay, there's there's all these sort of anti-Jewish races who suddenly emerge. Well, they're the story. Well, what about these other people? No, no, they're not the stories. We won't look at them. 
Um, so that's part of it. But but I have to say, I don't want in my book, I, I don't try to just say, look, what about something else? I think one of the mistakes we made on the left is we were quite prone when this happened. We found it really uncomfortable. And I think we kind of made a tactical mistake. We'd always go, well, what about this other thing which isn't being talked about? And I think sometimes you just got to hold up your hands and say, actually, this happened. Not proud of it. We don't like it, but it happened. We own it. We made that mistake and we're not going to let it happen again. And I just think that's much healthier than than people going, look, these other people were in an argument. They were just as bad or they were worse. Well, probably they were, but I can't change them. Whereas I might have some influence amongst the people who like me are on the Labour left. So I'm going to try and talk to people on the Labour left and explain what we got wrong and then let other people worry about what someone else got wrong. One of the frustrating things is that sometimes in the UK you feel that actually some of the arguments, some of the long arguments about, say, racism and music and so are actually being won. You know, we've had some really interesting art and political art and political mass culture come out of Britain in the last year. We've had the small act um, TV programmes um, which have gone through um, the history of Blair Peach, Lovers Rock, all these great sort of unresolved battles from the 1970s. They've all been on TV and millions and millions of people have been watching them. Um, so we kind of had that. So you kind of feel like, yeah, this is a big step forward. But then something else happens and you feel, oh, God, it's another big step back. Yeah, but this is interesting that you're talking about both books, too, because like you said, the one book is kind of looking at like where we might have gone wrong and like what you can do to, to like acknowledge that and maybe do it differently next time. And the other one is looking at like, what can we do? What steps can we make to like build towards a new way of doing things? So it's like yeah, kind it's of like acknowledging the past and like how to move forward in a different way. Yeah. 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 And, and again, I mean, like, I mean, it's not something I've never really tried to, to stick them too close together because, because they come from different movements and different contexts. But, but, you know, for example, with the anti-Semitism book, um, one of the things I suppose I'm doing, again, going back to this notion, do you just ban people you disagree with? Um, well, what that would mean in the Labour Party is, I mean, like, everyone who said anything, even mildly anti-Semitic, right, you expel them. Um, today we had, or was it yesterday, we had um, 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 film director, always named going out of my head, um, Ken... Uh, did Cathy come home? Cathy come home, which is a great documentary from the sixties. I'll, I'll be as we as I carry on speaking. I'll just we can find it. it. I can edit. Ken it's Lodge. not live. Ken Loach. Ken Loach. <laughs> so he, he got kicked out of the Labour Party not because he'd said or done anything anti-Semitic, but because they'd, they'd, the Labour Party had written to him and said, "Look, we think you've been on demonstrations with people who might have said or done anti-Semitic things." And you, you were in the same room as some of these people. So we want you now to denounce them. And if you won't denounce them, we're going to expel you. And this is just, again, I, I, this, that really is no way to stop anti-Semitism in my mind. Um, we're a country where something like one in, um, one in six British people, if they're asked, ask question, do you think that, that the Jews have too much influence in the media? We'll say yes. Mm. One in 10 um, people are asked, if your daughter was to marry someone who's Jewish, would that upset you? One in 10 people say yes. Mm. So there's an awful lot of still anti-Semitism in our society. So therefore it seems to be the first thing you do is you kind of get, okay, well actually some people might have rubbish ideas. So rather than going like, your bad ideas, we're gonna like put them in this capsule and like spell them somewhere a long way away so we don't have to live with this nastiness. 
I think, to my mind, I think what people should be doing, and, and this is pitching out the Labour right, it's not saying this, I'm not particularly saying this to people who agree with me, I'm saying it to people who disagree. I said, look, if you think there's a problem with anti-Semitism on the left, what we need to do is we need to challenge it. We need to talk to people. We need to explain to them why it's wrong. We need to give them a chance to say their version of things. And there needs to be dialogue. But it's dialogue where you're guiding someone towards the sense, I hope, pretty strongly and pretty directly, that actually saying racist things is not going to make them look clever it's not going to make their party look clever and it's stupid stuff to do but you don't get to the end immediately <laughs> you let people talk themselves through it and that's what labor won't do it won't actually try and go through a process of educating its members and actually explaining why this happened what went wrong what what needs to be done differently so i think across both of the books i guess there is a bit of a common theme of like not closing things down not thinking that, that there's something you don't want to happen so you just if you kind of like make it some bad to boo and shove it a long way away from you it's gone away um actually you kind of have to get a bit closer to it and you have to challenge it and you have to talk to it and you have to confront it and that's just a healthier political strategy i think yeah, and that's so, very psychological as well. It's like you can't just cut off these bad parts that you just want to annihilate and get rid of. You have to like integrate them, talk to them, like understand them, try to see their perspective. You don't have to agree, but at least like you can't just cut things off or it'll come back worse, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, before we started the podcast, I did say, I mean, you know, I, you know, I read very little psychology. This is something which, which you know, absolutely, absolutely hold up my hands as a weakness. But, um, but, but you saying that, that doesn't surprise me at all, because I think a lot of these problems are things which, you know, you can magnify and see them at the level of society as a whole. But actually, the, the pain's at the level of the individual. And, and therefore, you know, that it seems kind of obvious to me that other people would have thought about this, thought about this pretty deeply, frankly. And, and yeah, no, I'm really glad to hear you say that, frankly. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And maybe we could talk about your other book, too, A Year in the Life of a Lawyer. I would love to hear yeah, about yeah. it. OK, let me pull it down. So uh, I'm again, this is this is a great radio or podcast month. I'm, now I'm holding up a book which no one can see apart from Vanessa. But um, it's called Jobs and Homes. And it was it was a book about the year of my life of being in lockdown when I said earlier I didn't get any law done at all because all the, the courts were closed. It wasn't quite as closed as that. Um, and I just thought it'd be an idea to sort of talk to people about that because the two main areas of law I do are housing law and employment law. Um, and... I suppose the first thing I wanted to convey to people is, is that we often talk about a crisis in jobs and we often have an idea that there's a problem of insecure jobs and, and it's too easy to sack people. And under COVID, loads of people's employment prospects were, were absolutely terrible. I mean, we went up in one moment from the number of people claiming benefits within about four weeks from two to six million people. Mm. Um, and that must mean an awful lot of people either lost their jobs or their hours reduced to more or less zero when COVID started. But we, we also have, and it's, it's a less strong narrative, we have, but it is a narrative in the press. We have an idea that there are millions of people living in, in insecure housing, that the number of people renting in Britain is going up every year, every, every year. The, the amount of social housing is shrinking really fast because of policies like right to buy, which has long been a big press story here. Um, so we kind of had this, this, this thing that, that in our society, for whatever reason, 
um, we have more and more um, um, problems with both jobs and housing. And I suppose the first basic idea I was trying to say is that these things, they're not two different problems, they're one problem. You know, if you look at people who don't own their own home, um, what is the, by far the largest thing they spend their money on? Actually, it's their home, it's mm. their housing. Um, and I was, I was just trying to talk, some of it is trying to use my, just my day-to-day life, what it's like representing someone who, who's can't afford their rent and therefore is faced with eviction or someone who's rowdy, who's an alcoholic, who might be a drug user, who might have quite serious mental health issues, again, is threatened with the loss of their home. Um, what it's like to have had clients who've actually been made homeless, what it's like to have clients who've actually died as a result of being made homeless. And to talk about that as this kind of terrain of, 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 of struggle and conflict, try to see it through my client's eyes as far as I can. Um, so, but, but again, I suppose how, one of the ways in which it connects the other two books is it, is it was trying to say that even in this moment, what it, have you want to characterize this political moment? You know, people use a lot of words describing you know, neoliberalism or whatever. Um, that there are that it's it's recreating the combinations of people who who, who feel they don't have a stake in the system, feel they're angry, feel that they want to somehow resist or fight the system. It's creating new combinations of people the whole time. And I wanted to give some sense of that to, to people. I mean that that's again a lot of why I wrote the book. That um, we're starting to see very um, strong tenants unions in the UK in a way that we never had before. Um, and I think that's a really healthy dynamic. And I'm trying to explain, you know, how far you can use the law to deliver that and how far you need social movements to deliver that. But all the time saying, you know, here are groups of people who are trying to look beyond the present and trying again to offer a different, more equal version of the future. How did you end up becoming a barrister? You said that you didn't intend to. <laughs> I, was a hist- I was a career historian. Uh, I worked in university. Uh, one year they were going to sack a bunch of people so someone had become the union rep uh, and then the next year I got sacked and just me and then I sort of drifted into working for the union and I just found out that that very obviously a lot of what we wanted to do as a union if this was the 60s or the 70s and we had a big strategic objective we might plan over three or four years to have a national strike to win it but such is the balance of bargaining power that wasn't going to happen and so what what people were doing they're using the law and strategic litigation as the as the only mechanism to achieve victories, and I sort of I remember seeing that done out very very up close and feeling two things about it. I mean, firstly, I'd much rather people using movements rather than law to do that, but also secondly, you know, if that really was where the action would be, I'd like to be a bit closer to it. You know, just you know, I'd like to be the one arguing the case, and and you know, it's not something I particularly talk about in the book. So I, I did try to keep the cases actually the cases I've brought in the last year. And saying employment just the employment courts just fizzled out to like to nothing for months on end until we worked out a kind of an online court system. Um, but you know, of course, my career I've, I've represented a lot of workers in some really interesting cases. I was the one of a group of construction workers um, ten years ago um, got blacklisted out of their jobs. I became more or less the um, in-house counsel to them and just had amazing clients. You know, going to all sorts of incredible courts. You know the Court of Appeal, the European Court of Human Rights, trying to come up with completely new and unworked out previously legal strategies to, to get certain things to change. So um, I just wanted to give a bit of flavour of that too in the book, um, insofar as I could, given to say that, that, you know, that hasn't been particularly the cases I've been fighting this year, but 
Yeah, but it's always interesting. So interesting for me to see how your, people's like lives end up, and you end up in this kind of niche, like where your history as a historian ends up fueling or feeding your your kind of new line of work. Like everything builds on top of each other. Because um, I I work with a lot of students, and a lot of times they feel like they have to have their career path like planned out and like everyone else knows what they're doing when they're 22 but why don't I and it's like no one else knows yeah. what they're doing at that age and also things change like that you know you get laid off things move around but it's it always ends up kind of adding up to a new way of working in the world so yeah totally I mean again like I mean I, I remember when I was an undergraduate when I finished and I remember really intensely that feeling of like it seemed like every single person I knew had a really cleverly worked out plan they had an opportunity and they had a place and a thing. And, you know, I have to be, if I look back on that time of my life, I, I quite wish I'd gone a bit slower, actually. You know, I feel that that something came along and it was the first thing, in my case, to do a PhD, straight from undergrad to a PhD without anything in between. Um, and I feel, you know, I, right now, actually, I don't mind that too much. But I definitely remember feeling like 25, 28, 30, I'd have done a lot better to go slower at that point and just really spend a bit more time thinking what I really wanted to do. Right now, I don't mind because the PhD, as you said, became a layer and other things built on top of that layer. Mm. But I certainly remember for quite a long time going, mm, if I thought a bit about it, yeah, <laughs> been a bit slower, that could have been a bit cleverer, you know? Mm, I have a little bit more of time off to enjoy myself. Is there anything that we didn't get to that you wanted to be sure to mention? Any other things coming up or no, no, events not, or not anything all, like that? Not at all, Vanessa. Thank you. No, thank you. I mean, I, I feel like we've really covered it a lot. Yeah, it's fun. And anytime you have a new thing coming out that you want to talk about, just let me know. You're always welcome. Will do, definitely. All right. right. Thank you then. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. David Renton. For more, visit his website, dkrenton.co.uk and follow him at Twitter, at dkrenton. That's D-K-R-E-N-T-O-N. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, from Tripart Books 2019. For more information, you can visit our publisher's website, tripart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon patreon.com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl that's V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3 C-A-R-L 
Your support is very appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors. And now the song, Deviation. Trust what you perceive. From the album, Conceive Ourselves, a collaboration I did with Pete Murphy. Available at Bandcamp. Just visit highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. That's highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. The deviation within the world. As the work is recreated through sexual acts, mental projection, this how for it to take its flight. Formless and allow its progress with from the intention and allows for the person divination is often used needs to be done further as the formation of new life then speaks a new Irrationality as key or necessary agent. The rational mind frame hampers genuine creativity. Imagination and visionary ability. You trust what you perceive and not what others tell you to perceive.